Good morning, everyone. We're going to pick back up on page 67 in Chemnitz in Caridian, discussing free will or human powers, which has coincided with our earlier reading of the Book of Concord, Article 2 of the Formula of Concord. So you can see, you'll, you'll see the overlap, no doubt about it. Before we pick up at question 130, let's begin with an invocation and the Lord's Prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. All right, and maybe just one other comment to bring us up to speed. Here, when we're talking about free will and human powers, we always want to keep in mind those four different categories. So the first category, Adam and Eve before the fall. What could they do and not do? That's going to be categorically different than Adam and Eve after the fall and before conversion or fallen man, man after the fall, but before conversion. Okay, so you have Adam and Eve before the fall. That's one state. The second state of which Lutherans spend a lot of time talking because this is our primary disagreement with Rome is what powers do human beings have after the fall, but before they are converted by the Holy Spirit? The answer is none. We're dead, which is kind of neutral. You can think of Ephesians, dead in our trespasses. But even in a sense worse than dead, which is neutral, we are antagonistic against That is to say, we are enemies of God. Remember in Romans, while we were still enemies. Or the natural man perceives the things of the Spirit of God as foolishness. Not just as, eh, take it or leave it, but as foolishness. So, that's that second state of Mankind in which we discuss free will or human powers. Of course, the third state is after conversion, after the Holy Spirit has enlightened us. And this is the second place in which Lutheran theology focuses because we see that there are changes in the heart, in the will, in the intellect. There are changes that the Holy Spirit affects within us. They're always, quote-unquote, only begun in this life but they're there nonetheless. We went from people who did not fear God and despised him to people who fear God and love him. Do we fear, love, and trust in him perfectly? Of course not. That's not the claim, but we do now fear him and love him and trust in him insofar as the Holy Spirit is granted. Okay, and then the fourth and final state is just talking about saints in heaven, and or the new heavens and the new earth. How will it be when we're perfected? And so that's the fourth and final state, of which not a lot is spoken because there's not much controversy on that point. So question 130, 
and we're kind of picking up mid-argument, but I think we'll do fine without reviewing what came before. But if that kind of feelings must be present in conversion, is then the will of man not idle in contrition, but does and works something? The answer is going to fetch this out. But do note that it's a multi-stage question. The issue of this controversy does not consist in the question regarding the formal cause of contrition or conversion, but that regarding the efficient cause, that is, the question is not whether such change and such feelings must take place and be present in contrition or conversion, for this is beyond controversy, since conversion itself is nothing else than that kind of change. But the question is about this. Whence man has and acquires those feelings and changes? Whence does the mind, heart, and will of man obtain that power or ability that he can begin and affect the things that are required for repentance or contrition according to the divine word. Now to this question, Scripture, as we have shown a little earlier, plainly and clearly replies, man of himself, by the powers that belong to his nature or free will, can by no means have that ability or be able to call forth those feelings. But all this is a gift and work of God. Acts 5 and 11 cited and then 2 Timothy 2. For it is God who converts man, who takes away the heart of stone and gives a heart of flesh. All right. So God then is the source of all that happens downstream. God is the source of, even if you want to parse out what conversion consists of, if you want to talk about conversion as first contrition terrors of the heart, and then second, the preaching of the gospel, trust in Christ who saves the sinner. You want to parse that out. That's God who creates the contrition via his law and God who creates faith via his gospel. What about the fruits of that conversion? What about the ontological changes, the changes in the being of man, the heart transforming from a heart of stone to a living heart? Who does that? Does man take over at that point? No, that's God also. God changes the heart. He changes the will. He changes the intellect. So this would be an important distinction then that the heart, the will, and the intellect don't cooperate in conversion. They are the very things converted. You can think of the heart oriented against God, the will oriented against God. And I've kind of got my hand in a downward motion like a light switch. The intellect oriented against God. And conversion is when God takes those things by his word and flips them, flips the light switch on. They're the things converted 
they don't participate in the conversion. They're not the activity or the energy. They're passively converted by God. But then we do want to acknowledge that the switch was once off, now it's on. Once was darkness, now is light. There's a profound difference that's taken place, thanks be to God. Everything that goes downstream from that, God gets all credit for. Even though, of course, we will go on to speak, as does Chemnitz here, and as does the Book of Concord, about our cooperation with God. Because now we have a heart that wills the things that God wills. We have, uh, and I'm kind of confusing the categories, we have a heart that feels as God feels. We have a will that wills as God wills. We have an intellect that thinks as God thinks. Of course, just begun in this life. And maturing throughout our earthly lives. But that is all wrought by God. And then the nature of that work is such that we cooperate. There can't be any other way. If you have a heart that feels the way God feels, then there's immediately a cooperation involved. Yeah, please. Would you comment on the the news, novels, and so forth, portray evil? I would think it's... Oh, portray evil. And I would think in a way that's an acknowledgement of evil. And how does the natural, you know, like Romans talks about awareness of, but there's some kind of conscience there. Mm -hmm. So, and I've thought, well, how, even people who are not Christians acknowledge, I think, wickedness and horrible, although some don't, but. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, all of our, all of our classic stories, uh, and I mean by our, I mean just pagan fallen man's stories and art and everything else, make sense and follow patterns of good versus evil and indicate what Paul is speaking about in Romans, that every single human being is born with a conscience and is born knowing his creator, knowing uh, at, at a sort of a basic level right and wrong, the conscience accusing or excusing, and that is everywhere evident. What we also find, though, is that through a suppression of the knowledge of God, through a suppression of the conscience, things get upside down. That's where you also have examples in media, literature, art, where that's been subverted. And now the, the good is evil and the evil is good. So you do, you do find that. But generally speaking, it's recognized as such. Generally speaking, it's commonly held to be perverse or subversive or outside of the norm when that occurs. So that, again, just retestifies to the natural knowledge of God, the natural law that he's written within our hearts. So both of those things are true. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. Yes, please. I'm confused in a sense that uh, everything comes from God. The uh, you know the free will and everything comes from God that makes us believe and you know looking from the Calvinism point, everyone is elected. With, what, what they call it? They call it the pre. Uh, Predestination, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, how, when is, if we are predestined, what will be our free will do? That wouldn't be our free will. It will be God's. 
free will of it. Yeah, I think the most that makes a difference. Yeah, I mean, without without doing a whole devolving into a whole class on predestination, I I think it's the most important thing about predestination or election is to put it within the frame the Bible puts it in, to speak of it in the way the Bible speaks of it. It's when we pull it out as an abstract doctrine and talk about it that before we've even begun to discuss, we've already framed the question in a way that the scriptures haven't framed it. How does the doctrine of election work in the scriptures? That there's a proclamation of the gospel of Christ Jesus, first and foremost, Christ crucified for sinners. And those sinners who believe then have all kinds of challenges that they face. If God loves me in Christ Jesus... Why do I suffer? Why is the devil after me? How is that a threat? Why is that a threat? Why is this threat allowed to remain, etc.? And you've got verses of great comfort then, like, no one can snatch you out of my hand. You've got promises like, neither life nor death, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in creation can take you away from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And you've got similar statements that you are elect, that God foreknew you, that God called you by name, that God chose you. So what then, how does election, the doctrine of election, actually function in the scriptures? It's gospel, and it's a kind of gospel that's specifically for believers. The good news that our salvation as believers is so entirely out of our hands (laughs) that we can't mess it up. How so? Because God, before the foundation of the world, chose you. Before you did anything good or anything bad. It's irrevocable, the promises of God, in time, because they were decided outside of time. Is that comforting doctrine? Absolutely. That's the most comforting doctrine, and that's what election is meant to do. Now, if we pull election out and start, well, maybe God before time chose some to go to heaven and chose some to go to hell, what happens to our hope? What happens to our comfort? It disappears in the desperate quest to find out if I'm elect or not. So if you're interested in learning more about the Lutheran position on election, which happens to be the scriptural position and the early church position on election, then I'd encourage you in the book of Concord, in the formula of Concord, to look at Article 11. Article 11 is on election, and it's masterful. It's one of the most comforting articles in all of the Book of Concord on a topic that's otherwise controversial and causes nothing but doubt and consternation. And, you know, functionally, how does this work, too? In churches that teach double predestination, that God elects some to go to heaven, they can't do anything about it, and some to go to hell, they can't do anything about it. How you determine if you're elect is like, well, are you bearing the fruits, brother? So is your heart and mind set on Christ and him crucified for you? No. Is your heart and mind set on the promises of election given in the scriptures that God knew you and chose you and elected you before the foundation of the world? No. You're shifted to this other frame of God arbitrarily saving some and damning others, which distorts your view of God. And then in a desperate attempt to know whether or not you're saved, you're pointed by pastors to your fruit. And so your eyes are all the more diverted away from Christ, and you fall 
prey to that old familiar dichotomy of self-righteousness and despair. One day self-righteous because I'm elect and I've got fruits and you buggers don't. And you know maybe the next 15 minutes later in utter despair because maybe my works are all phony and maybe I'm not really elect. So that's the spiritual dynamic at work. And I know that on a formal level, studying the doctrines, but I know that on a pastoral and personal level too because I've ministered to people who have come out of that system and said that's exactly what I was dying from. In fact, in many ways, they helped me see the practical and pastoral implications of when this doctrine goes bad. All right, good questions. Yeah, one more. I've reflected on this before, but now more extensively because there's so many earlier and the question. Um, We acknowledge men in battle, especially over this last weekend, what they went through. Mm Mm-hmm. And even men on a football field. Mm-hmm. And we cheer them on. Which, um, we acknowledge that suffering. And we think it's wonderful that they do it. Mm-hmm. The same thing, I think, when in heaven, looks down on us and cheers us on. Right. To keep battling. Right, absolutely. Yeah, and I think you can reflect on it if you've, uh, if you've done athletics or any other kind of uh, athletic pursuit. You know, it's, you don't remember them. You don't dwell on the moment where the team's getting their picture taken and you're being handed your trophy. You dwell on the play where you made the basket or blocked the shot or uh, tackled the quarterback or caught the touchdown. You dwell on the action. That's where the real glory is. (laughs) And it's a both and, right? It's a both and. But the point and the emphasis being that we shouldn't neglect the fact that we are in the glory of Christ right now. We are being glorified with him right now, uh, even as his own suffering is glorification. So are our lives glorification, right? Okay, so then on to question 131, and a bit more on free will or human powers before we go over to the glorious gospel next. Can man resist this kind of divine operation, hinder it, drive it out, and counter with contrary action? Indeed, he can, and alas, too often and too much, does so. But people should be taught that this itself is a most serious sin. For thus they resist the Holy Spirit himself, whose operation in themselves they hinder, despise, and destroy. For when God, through the word, arouses and works the beginnings of such feelings in man, and by that very thing provides the powers and ability to begin and do what is required for repentance, he surely also earnestly requires of us that we do not receive that grace in vain or allow it to be idle or vain in us. 1 Corinthians 15.10, 2 Corinthians 6.1 But let us well and profitably invest the talent received from God and diligently put it to use. Reference to Jesus' parable of the talents. Remember where the one's given the five and the other the three and the last the one? 
and the men with the five and the three go out and use those talents in such a way that they gain more. And the one who has the one takes it and goes out and buries it. And then when the master comes back and gets to the judgment, he says, he says, I knew you to be a hard man. That's an indication of his own hard heart and his own faithlessness. He does not trust the one who entrusted him with the one talent. And the fruit of that is he takes the talent and buries it in the earth. To which, of course, the Lord responds, if you knew I was a hard man, why didn't you put it in the bank so I'd at least get interest on my money? Showing that there's something going on that's not good faith, but indeed a kind of hatred and a kind of despising of the gift and rejection of the gift that Christ has given. So Chemnitz then using that here, um, and of course he ends up getting that talent taken away. The others end up being rewarded all the more. And Chemnitz using that here to show and illustrate the point that we not resist the Holy Spirit, that we not allow grace to be idle or vain in us. But let us well and profitably invest the talent received from God and diligently put it to use, Matthew 25, 16 through 17. Let us not allow the old Adam either to hinder or destroy that work of God in us. So there's a spiritual battle to, I mean, in in a sense, to let the Holy Spirit have his way with you and If you want to further the discussion, or maybe make the discussion a little more comfortable, we can even talk about that in the frame of justification or in the frame of sanctification. In the frame of justification, we want to believe that we are, in fact, saved. We want to have that assurance. We need to realize that if we doubt our salvation, we're calling God a liar, and we're resisting the Holy Spirit. We don't want to do that. We want to believe and entrust ourselves fully. We can remind that we can remind ourselves that he is good, that he is love, that he is more wonderful, more innocent, more trustworthy, more blessed than we are, and he has bestowed this upon us. He can never lie. And we want our faith to be confirmed in that. Now in the sphere of sanctification, we can also take heart in this respect that the Holy Spirit is at work within us. And you go, well, I'm, I'm not feeling much progress. Well, then just believe it as an article of faith that the Holy Spirit is at work in you. And keep doing what you're doing, attending church, daily prayers, and entrust yourself that the Holy Spirit is working despite how you feel. Again, there's one who's greater than your heart and greater than your feelings and greater than your perceptions, and that's God, and he's told you in his word what's happened. So believe it. And as you believe it, actively participate in it, and that's growth and sanctification. So we don't want, I mean, it's impossible for a Christian to be stagnant. The only thing we're fighting is this kind of weird, twisted teaching that, it's somehow a mark of orthodoxy to be stagnant or maybe even sliding backwards in your sanctification. Why? Because you trust in Jesus so much or some such foolish thing. Well, if you trust in Jesus so much, 
then you're certainly going to be conformed into his image. You're certainly going to follow him whom you trust. All right, so maybe the justification, sanctification is a helpful distinction that we can use to further flesh out Chemnitz's point. Uh, this is kind of going back to the uh, question that I think Philip had on the Calvinist view. I look at this question in 131, can a man resist? Yes. And so I look at the Calvinist view as, well, I believe it's completely incorrect, and that is it almost seems like they're teaching that if a person wants to be saved because they've been elected to be damned, they cannot, which is not true. Right. If a person wants to be saved, God wants them to be saved. God's already worked in their heart right. if they want to be saved. So yeah. I look at, you know, thinking of Philip's question and what you said was that that's really sort of deceptive because it makes it sound like it would be just the opposite of this. What we're discussing it makes it sound like a... A person who desires salvation, who wants to come to God. Nope, you're you're elect to be damned. You cannot come. Right? Yeah. It's, nothing can be further from the truth. Yeah. So yeah. I look I'd, at this as so that is the opposite of this resistance here. Great point. Great point. Yeah. And I don't mean to be too pejorative here, because especially in this day and age, there's a lot we, uh, you know, there's a lot we can and should be doing. I think in terms of like recognizing our brothers in Christ, the ones who are faithful in various denominations. So I'm not trying to peck unnecessarily, but five-point Calvinism, which is classic Reformed theology, the five points you've heard, uh, tulip. So um, I think Lutherans are like one-point Calvinists. (laughs) The T in tulip stands for total depravity, and that, by that we don't mean we're as bad as we could possibly be. We're not all like bloodthirsty zombies. That's not the point. The point is exactly what we've been studying here and in the Book of Concord, that we can't turn toward God at all. In that sense, we're wholly lost. We're wholly dead. We're wholly enemies. We can't turn ourselves. There's nothing left good in us. There's the one point of Calvinism we agree with. Now, the U stands for unconditional um, election, and we've got problems there. Maybe we could be 1.5 Calvinists if we take that unconditional election and just understand one side of the coin. But it's kind of hard to fetch that out. Maybe we're 1.5 Calvinists, okay? But the other side of that unconditional election is unconditional damnation. And that kind of gets fleshed out at the I. The next you have is L, which is limited atonement. What happens in limited atonement is the same thing that happens that we were talking about earlier, where when you take election out of biblical context and you think of it as a concept and a frame, then everything has to fit within that concept and frame. And so what's happened in the Reformed Calvinistic tulip churches is the frame is election. And if God, before there, was, before there was any time or space or human beings, decides, well, I'm going to create some to be damned and some to be elect, why on earth would he ever send his son to die for those whom he's already damned? He's not going to. That makes no sense. So he's just died for the elect. That's the L, the limited atonement. You can see how everything gets askew as soon as you take it outside of the way the scriptures speak and you'd make it into a rationalistic system. The next is the point I really wanted to get to, and that's the I, irresistible grace. So the idea is if you're elect, 
you can't resist the grace. And this creates, um, and if you're, I mean, the flip side of this, of course, if you're damned, you can't resist the damnation. Okay. And this makes a whole big, you can watch the gymnastics occur when somebody who's quite obviously a Christian and makes the Christian profession, everybody acknowledges their elect, suddenly apostatizes and they go, well, I guess not, he was just pretending the whole time. Because no one who's truly elect would ever fall away. So the I, irresistible grace, ties in with the P of the tulip, which is the perseverance of the saints. That is to say, if you're really a saint, you can never fall away. Interesting. What do they make of Jesus when he says in the parable of the sower that they believed for a while and then fell away? Now we've got to do more gymnastics. So the beauty of being Christian in the proper sense, Lutheran in the proper sense, is learning how to speak the way the Bible speaks and learning how to think the way the Bible thinks, which is entirely different than a rationalistic, systematic, man-made, let's connect all the dots, let's solve all the mysteries, let's get an airtight system. Calvinism is about as close to that as you can get, and you can see that what it ends up doing is just irreparably mangling the scriptures. And then it's not, the point isn't like, oh, so they're wrong. You know, the point is that where they're wrong, it's devastating to souls. It's destructive to faith on each one of those four points. There's two edged swords that'll cut one way or the other and undermine faith. So, Thanks be to God, especially for the, our Reformed brothers and sisters in Christ who like don't care any about that and just strive to follow the scriptures. And insofar as they do, God be praised. And by, by the way, in Philadelphia, I have told Felix, Felix. Felix. Yeah. Because we went to uh, Reformed churches for a while. And my oldest brother, this is his big struggle, is he thinks that men and women are elect for damnation and they have no choice and I have so much compassion. It is not true. They do. So, yeah, I, yeah. the pastor explains a little better than I do, but <laughs> that's well, all I meant by it is just I can totally concur. It kind of undermines the God. Yeah, it <laughs> undermines the gospel proclamation, too, doesn't it? I mean, if they're, if they're saved and nothing can be changed or they're damned and nothing can be changed, why on earth would you preach the gospel all nations? I mean... Jesus says to do it, so I guess we got to be obedient, but that's kind of futile. He's going to do it whether we do it or not. So it wrecks more than you might think, uh, that system. If you really embrace it, you'll see all kinds of distortions. I'm making this connection, too. I don't, I probably somebody else has observed it. But in, in Calvinism, as I understand it, at least early on, one of the signs that you were a Christian was supposed to be you lived a wonderful life. Mm-hmm. And I can see that as a seed to a Joel Osteen and that kind of thinking. You know, best life now. Yeah, yeah. Right, it can get that way. Or if, like, if my life is successful, I must be sanctified. And if my life is uh, unsuccessful, I must not be uh, that's, vi- that's very close to uh, New Testament Phariseeism. Very close to New Testament Phariseeism. So there is a verse or two in scriptures, and the confessions talk this way too. So, so 
I don't, I'm not going to say this to confuse you. I'm going to say this to just sort of, if we cleanse the slate from all the reformed errors we've been talking about, there are scriptures and there are good, faithful, orthodox, and Lutheran statements that say a Christian can know by his good works that he has faith. And anything else is just sophistry. But you can say, I mean, you can ask yourself, like, stop playing the mental games. Like, do you want to be in heaven with God? That's a good work. That's a fruit and evidence of faith. So let's just get out of our heads and get out of this obnoxious spiritual illness of circularity and just, is that what you want? You didn't put that thought there. God did, and that's proof of the Holy Spirit indwelling you, and it's proof of a renewed man, and it's fruit of the faith. Okay, in, under non, When we're not in theological controversy, when the truth isn't being assaulted by false doctrines, when we're not in spiritual duress, and Satan isn't trying to undermine everything with a phony, oh, that's a phony good work and a phony faith, and every, when we're just healthy and normal, we can say that. We can say, I have fruit of, I want to confess the creed. I want to go to church. Oh, with your whole heart? That's completely aside from the point. With any part of my heart means that God's done it, and it's there. All right, so we don't want to deny the obvious in some kind of you know, fool's game. Um, it is perfectly fine when you're healthy and when the church is healthy to talk that way. And like I said, the scriptures and the Lutherans do. Um, when points of doctrinal controversy or points of acute spiritual attack take place, then sometimes it is beneficial to just despair of the fruits altogether and just say, I can see the whole field. I've got absolutely nothing but Christ. He's my only hope. And why it's expedient to do that is because that shuts down the devil instantly. That shuts down the attack instantly. It shuts down all the conditionals of false theologies. You know, and, that, and this really does boil down to the gospel. I'd, I'll, maybe this would be my final point. Lutheranism has retained the pure gospel in the Western church. And it's to be credited for that. It's, it's really, I mean, at its heart, probably why I'm a Lutheran. It has retained the gospel, whereas every other denomination has not retained the pure gospel. If you do Roman Catholic theology honestly, it's Jesus died for you to open a door so that you, with the help of Mary, can work your way in. That's, did you see that, so that, and did you see the shift, the conditional, there's something you have to do? The Reformed also, though they deny it, have a conditional. Their gospel, if they were honest, would sound like this. Jesus died for you if you're elect. How do I know that? Look at your works. Okay. But do you see the conditional? If you're elect. What does non-denominationalism, what does evangelicalism do to the gospel? Jesus died for you if you make a decision and pray this prayer. But the key emphasis on make a decision Every other proclamation of the gospel requires some sort of conditional attached to it. But the Lutheran Church has retained the pure gospel, which is Christ died for you, full stop. There's no conditional. 
There's no if you're elect. There's no if you choose. There's no if you work hard enough with Mary's help. There's Christ died for you, full stop. Your sins are forgiven. You are reconciled to God. That's the beauty of what we have. So as much as I might, you know, be a critic of much of Lutheranism <laughs> and its modern state, as much as I might be critical of um, various errors that, I, that we've fallen into as of late, I love the Lutheran Church, and if I thought there was somewhere better, I'd be there. And what the Lutheran Church has that is just of priceless worth is that pure, undefiled gospel. Please. Is it a conditional to say uh, Christ died for you um, if you choose to accept that? No, he, he did, whether you did or not, but mm-hmm. your salvation does depend, or does it depend on whether or not you're willing to receive that gift. So that, in other words, if you choose to accept it, but you could choose to reject it, so that might be a conditional? Yeah, see, here's, but here's the point. The objective nature of the gospel. It's like, so, so the gospel is telling us something that's already done. So it would be analogous to me making the statement, the lights are on. That's the same kind of statement categorically as Jesus died for you and your sins are forgiven. It's true whether you believe it or not. And you don't need to accept it for it to be true. It already is true. The only thing you can do is go like this. No, they're not. Not for me. Lights aren't on for me. Okay. Only thing you can do is be like, Jesus didn't die for me. That's foolishness. He, I, don't, I don't need a Savior like that. Or, I've sinned too deeply. Even a Savior like that couldn't help me. Okay? But all that's doing is a little child covering their eyes and saying the light's not on. But it doesn't, it doesn't change the fact that the light is on. It doesn't change the fact that they are saved and redeemed by Christ. The objective nature of that evidenced in the fact that even unbelievers are risen in their body. It's only at that time in which they're risen in their body, um, having said stubbornly, no God, the lights are off, I don't want anything to do with you, Um, I'm going to be your enemy until the end, I refuse this reconciliation. It's only then in finality that God says, fine, have it your way, be judged by the law, and go where you want to go. That's the final. So, in that sense, you can then see how it is that man can only reject. Or, to take it back to question 131, man can only resist. God isn't sitting around waiting for a man to accept so it suddenly becomes true. It's already true. All man can do is delude himself against it. You're already on the boat. All you can do is jump off the boat. Okay? You can't choose to stay on the boat, you're already there. Yeah. And this, is, this would fall classically on, under the heading of objective justification. And that's really what the threat is. Okay. So as soon as, as soon as then, like if you've got an adversary that's really going after you, they're gonna, they're gonna, their next attack is going to be reductio ad absurdum to, oh, so you're universalist. 
Because Christ has died for all, all are saved. How could it be otherwise? That's when we pivot with the scriptures into subjective justification, which is, again, this is the teaching. This is all fleshed out in Romans 4 and 5. We don't have to make this up. Paul already lays it all out for us. And we can pivot then and say, no, it's received in faith. Well, is that faith an action of my will? Am I choosing? Am I agreeing? Or in the negative, we play those games. Am I just not resisting? (laughs) all All of that's washed away in the objectivity of the gospel, the objective justification. It's only when we're up against universalists that we point and say, no, everyone is saved who believes. Those who reject in unbelief are condemned. That also is the teaching of the scriptures. So, objective, subjective justification. Yep, please. Can you explain how repentance come into place? Yeah, well, repentance is, is on the side of subjective justification, the way we've just been talking about it. So repentance, remember, has multiple senses in the scriptures. In the wide sense, repentance can mean something like be converted. In the narrow sense, it can mean something like be brought to contrition or sorrow over one's sins. You see both of those uses of the language of repentance in the New Testament scriptures. Sometimes where Jesus says repent, he means be converted. Other times when he says it, he means acutely you're condemned under the law of God. So, for example, where would, where would one of those be? Where he te- tells his disciples at the end of Luke. Um, oh gosh, I just lost it. <laughs> That's embarrassing. He tells his disciples at the end of Luke um, to preach repentance and the forgiveness of sins in his name to all nations. I think I got that right. Somebody can fact check me with a quick Google search since I had a momentary aneurysm or whatever that was. <laughs> but what you, see that, what you see there is a distinction between repentance and forgiveness of sins from the lips of Jesus. You see how preaching repentance and the forgiveness of sins in his name to all nations. Okay, so where you see that distinction, you can say, here's repentance in the narrow sense, meaning the, what God, how God works contrition or repentance into our hearts through his law. Okay, so we have to have that foundation just so we understand the biblical data we're looking at, that sometimes repentance means conversion, and sometimes repentance it means is just one part of conversion. Okay? God is responsible for both. God is the one who converts us, which has the law and the gospel, those are his tools to convert us. Where God causes us to repent and then causes us to believe his forgiveness, there we just see it spread out. And we just see the way he uses his law to affect repentance in us and his gospel to affect faith in us. Okay? Yes, I see a hand. Something I've observed and experienced is once the Holy Spirit has converted us and you realize how close to death you were or that you were dead and how sinful you are and how much you need a Savior. 
you get a sense of urgency that you need to run around and tell everybody, you know, the good news. But what tends to trip us up, as you just described, is you almost expect when you share the gospel with someone that they be converted in that instant. Mm -hmm. And you want a result based on you telling them. What we need to do is just live a Christian life and be the light in the world because we don't know how our actions or the things we've done can affect someone else. I think back in my history, you know, something somebody said to me once was just another straw that eventually created a tipping point, and it's all God's work. So I've gotten a lot of mileage out of just trusting that God's doing the work, not only in me, but through me to help people that I pray come to the truth. Absolutely. It's not up to me. <laughs> and I'm so glad you said that. You know, now more than ever is a time to not worry about doing it wrong. Just share the hope that is within you. Don't worry if you do it wrong. Don't worry if you get asked some question that you can't answer. You know, one of the unfortunate things, I've reflected on this a little bit. I just don't know what to do. Um, so, sometimes we as clergy don't do our people any favors almost precisely because we're so blessed by seminary and well-educated, we can give the impression that Christianity is something like, oh, just let the professionals handle this. And it's, that's just such a ridiculous, toxic idea. Uh, and, you know, all I can say is I'm sorry for my part. <laughs> I, it's not an intended consequence. I, we need to, just because um, pastors are trained with technical knowledge, doesn't mean that you have to be when you share the hope that is within you. Just go share the light. Just as you said, live a Christian life. Let people be drawn to you. Speak the gospel boldly. Make the good confession. Afterward, I have little doubt that the Holy Spirit will point out to you, you know, you could have said that and it would have been better. Okay, lesson learned. (laughs) On to the next one. That very thing, believe it or not, happened to me yesterday. I couldn't even believe it. I couldn't even believe it. It's just so dumb. Like, I haven't grown at all. Um, but, but yeah, it's, uh, the Holy Spirit will no doubt, after the fact, point out what you could have said if you could have said something better. And okay, forgive me, lesson learned, and move on. But we can't let that hinder the joy that is within us. Just express it and just let it go and don't worry about being wrong, okay? Don't let that hinder you. Please. Yes, I know the Lutheran's response is if asked, when were you saved? It would be uh, my baptism. (laughs) Yeah, right. right? Great answer. But but we also know um, that everyone who's been baptized are not necessary Mm -hmm. to live out their salvation, but Mm -hmm. God's provided them. I'm just curious, is there a response? Like in the Lutheran church, is there a time to say, yes, even though I was baptized when I was a baby? but I wasn't really walking in the door. But then when I became 34 or whatever, I, this is a time where I definitely became, you know, God. Is there, is there, is there that clarity that, yes, it, it was that date that I was actually, you know, redeemed and converted? Mm. No, I don't think so. I mean, not necessarily. I, I've got no problem if someone says, I had this moment where I came to faith, and I was baptized later, that moment is the moment that God brought me to faith. Why would we have any problem with that? I've got no problem with someone who says, I was baptized, 
and I was just not nurtured in the faith or I didn't pay attention and I utterly lost my way. And then one day through these circumstances, God brought me to faith in a way that if I believed, I hadn't believed in that manner before and I probably didn't believe and now I do. I've got no problem with that. And in fact, I think if, even if you look at some lifelong Christians, I mean, this is not the ideal. The ideal is that you'd be in the faith from, from baptism as a little child all the way until death. But some Christians experience lapses in their faith, and they can point to two or three times, maybe over the course of their life, in which there are these monumental moments where the Holy Spirit brought you home. Kind of a la David with, uh, who was it, that Nathan um, preaching to him. And it's like, you see that even in David. He's like, I was, you know, I was lost. I just condemned myself, and I'm back. And Psalm 51 is a result of that. So one size doesn't fit all. And unfortunately, there are some prodigals. This is what we should liken the lapsed baptized to. There are some prodigals. They're sons of that father. They're baptized children of God. They're sons of our heavenly father. But they're still out there with the pig pods. Or they're out there spending everything. And there are some that die out there with the pigs and don't return home. That's a reality. But just because that's a reality doesn't mean we want to exploit and damage what baptism is. They die as sons who are no longer sons on account of their sin and on account of their death. But if they come to themselves and they come back, God says, just as the Father says, welcome home. Wraps the robe of righteousness around, sandals on their feet in the feast. So that's a good way to, that, I think that parable, I mean, the more I've, I've grown into that parable, it's, it's the baptismal reality. It's life as God's children. Please. Interesting example, C.S. Lewis relates that after over 20 years of really devout atheism, he is riding in a sidecar with his brother, reluctantly going to church with his brother, Before getting to church, in the sidecar, he says, it came to me, this is all true. (laughs) That's it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly right. God God grants us that. God grants us that. Those those moments of clarity. Well, and then truth be told, I mean, I, I I love reflecting on Luther's 95 Theses, the first thesis that when our Lord Jesus Christ calls us to repentance. He means that our entire lives would be lives of repentance. In a very real sense, every day is a conversion. I mean, I, and I'm not saying I fall into unbelief every day and have to be reconverted, but I'm saying God's graces and his mercies are new every morning, and every morning he's calling me to some aspect of his truth. He's calling me to believe. He's calling me to have my eyes open to some gift. He's calling me out of my despair, out of my self-medication, That happens constantly. And if it weren't for that constant action of the Holy Spirit, we'd all be lost in an afternoon. So it's while while our human minds tend to be attracted to these great big, you know, and the skies parted and the sun shone upon me and I was a new man. And I don't mean to disparage that. I mean to say, though, that God, as is his way, is doing the miraculous 
in humdrum, small, mundane, everyday life, the same way he's given you breath and you don't even realize it and beating your heart away and you don't even realize it. And he's, he's doing that miraculous work all the time. And so I just, I'm trying to give credit where credit's due there too, lest we get this kind of wistful, romanticized view of God's work in our lives. Esther? Yeah. Earlier, there was a question on uh, repentance and how it related to the for- forgiveness of sins, and you asked for the verse, and it's in Luke twenty four forty seven. Thank you. Please. Where uh, right before Jesus's ascension, he says uh, that the that repentance and the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. And so, I guess my question is this. Repentance should be preached, and the forgiveness of sins should be preached. Two distinct things, and we have to keep those and acknowledge that that's, uh, those are separated, and we always need to have a repentance uh, understanding, and God was working in our hearts. Is that the correct? I think that's wonderful. Yeah, in fact, your comments would, would lead me to say this. Like, so Lutherans talk a lot about law and gospel and that distinction. And, and in truth, I think things have gotten distorted over the last, I don't know, 50 or so years when we talk about law and gospel. As is always the case, it gets cliched and then it gets distorted. But if you were to ask, where does Jesus himself teach a distinction between law and gospel? There are other places and more detailed places you could point, but that would be a wonderful shorthand for where our Lord himself makes a distinction between repentance and the preaching of repentance, which is properly the law, and the forgiveness of sins, the preaching of that which is properly the gospel. So, yeah, but elsewhere where it's even clearer, and of course you have Paul and Romans articulating this down to the detail, excluding good works, so that um, you know, we see a, a very clear distinction of law and gospel that we are saved apart from the works of the law. Yes? So without acknowledgement of our sins, we wouldn't need a Savior. Right. Without acknowledgement of our sins, we wouldn't need a Savior, which is why uh, Jesus will say, I came not for the well, but for the sick. And what is he saying? Is he saying, well, there are some people who are well and don't need me. No, that's not what he's saying. Everyone is sick and sick unto death. I've come for all, but for those who think themselves well, they won't receive what I have for them. And so it's only those self-righteous who presume themselves to be well, who presume themselves to be alive, who presume themselves to be free apart from Christ, who he excludes from his gospel ministry because they exclude themselves. As soon as they're willing to acknowledge, you know, Lord, I'm not as healthy as I think I am, or I thought I was, then the gospel is for them. He is for them, right? So how do you convince someone who thinks, like, think of this just concretely, all right? You're the doctor. You've got the little fancy white coat on with the stethoscope around your neck. And in walks a patient, and you run the patient through uh, blood work, okay, and You've got all this blood work instantaneously in, in my story here. And you see that they've got uh, cancer. They've got cancer markers all throughout their body. And you're like, 
okay, we're going to have to do further testing here because it indicates you've got cancer everywhere. And they say, no, I don't. I feel fine. Nothing. I'm, no, I'm good. I'm in perfect health. How are you going to try to convince them that they're sick? You're not going to say, hey, well, I want you to just take this medicine just because. You're going to show them the test results. You're going to send them to other tests. You're going to show them those results. Ultimately, you're going to get whatever it is that shows the masses and everything. Okay, so you're going to have to demonstrate to them that they're sick. That's what the work of the law is. It's the Ten Commandments that comes and says, well, if you think you're good, how are you doing with these things? And, of course, Jesus, the master surgeon, the the master physician, says, oh, you think that it's just not by committing crass adultery? No, no, no. The law and the spirit of the law is such that if you've even looked at a woman with lust in your eye, you're already condemned. Are you sure you're still good? Are you sure you're still healthy? So that's the work of the law. You can see how the work of the law, though, is done by Christ in service to the gospel. Why is he using the law, the preaching of repentance? Why? So that people will acknowledge they're sick and receive from him the medicine of immortality. So even his preaching of the law serves the proclamation of the gospel. That's the point. It's Satan who will stop with the law. Okay, you're sick. There's no hope for you. The medicine's too weak or the medicine's not for you. Satan loves to preach the law as long as he can stop with the law and not move on to the gospel. So he will use that side. And the other side, the way he just runs amok in the world, is lawlessness. But then if you're going to listen to the law, he'll try to tell you, ah, there's no hope, or pick yourself up by the bootstraps, that kind of thing. Okay, well, we didn't get very far. (laughs) But in fairness, I was fielding your comments and questions. So let's share the blame today. We'll pick up, not next week, We've got a little hiatus, but two weeks from today uh, at 1.32. Let's pick up there. And let me close up the class, and then I've just got a quick announcement. The Lord be with you. Okay, so the quick announcement is we've got a vacation Bible school.